Well, it is great to be here with you again today. I tell you what, uh, you youth, my young brothers and sisters, well done. Well done. You guys might get me to come out and join your church with that kind of wonderful praise and to see the exuberance in the next generation. God bless you all. God bless you. Well, it's been a little while since I've been here, guys. Uh, lots have happened. Like Brother Jeff said, I have got one more year left of seminary. Praise God. I didn't think it was ever going to end. We are living some incredible times, aren't we? If there has never been a time in human history where people needed to hear the message of the gospel, it is now. So we've got a lot of ground to cover today. So let me open up with a word of prayer, and then we're going to jump in. Okay, now if you don't mind, we're going to be running around the Bible a little bit. You guys bothered with that at all? Okay. So let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity where you've allowed for us in your sovereign grace to be able to gather together as a people. And at this time, I pray, Father God, that you would help us to recognize this great privilege, that we would not take it for granted, Lord God. The ability for us to be able to gather together and open up your word, we recognize that all our brothers and sisters around the world are not afforded this grace. And so we remember this time and ask that you be a part. Father, it's a wonderful thing indeed that you've chosen to use broken vessels to achieve your means. And so here stands before your people one who is broken. And so I ask, Lord God, that you empower this, your servant, to speak your word clearly for the benefit of your people and the glory of your great name. Hear this prayer I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so earlier this year... I got a wonderful gift. So my wife and I, we have our house in South Riding, and we've got about a third of an acre. And mowing that thing over the years has not been fun. So someone offered to me a zero-point turn mower, riding mower. Boy, was I happy when I got that thing. Now, I got it around January, and so it needed to get worked on, and then I had to wait for the first cut of the season to be able to get it. And oh boy, when that time came, I was giddy as a little boy, okay? So I finished my work, and I had about two hours before my wife got home, so I thought, let me go take this thing out. And oh boy, was it fast. I'm telling you, I got on this thing, it was zipping back and forth on my, my, my backyard. It was like the Indy 500. I didn't realize how long I was out there. My wife comes up, and I see her coming, so I drive, and she sees I've got a grin face to, um, oh, ear to ear, right? So she's like, how's it feel? Oh, man, this thing is great. It's fast. You wouldn't believe. And then she asked the question, how's it cut? I was like, wait, cut? Yeah, you know it's a mower, right? <laughs> so, all right, let me, let me go back there and, and see how it cuts. So I set the blade height, lowered it, and this thing cut like butter like a hot knife through butter. I could not believe how nice it was. Now, in open space, this thing was unbelievable. But near the house, you know, it takes a little bit of finesse. You know where this is going, right? So I was not paying attention when I came to the back staircase of our house, and I took a turn a little too quickly, and wham! Knocked the whole side of this thing off. And I'm sitting there going, ugh. I cannot believe I just did. I just got this thing. So I pick up the wreckage, take it to the house, 
to the front of the house and see what needs to be done. And I didn't realize it. I didn't break it at all. This thing sat with super magnets, and all I had to do was plop it back on, and I was back in business. Awesome, right? Wouldn't it be cool if life was like that? Wouldn't it be cool if you took the worst of your mistakes and you were able to just plop it back in place and nothing would be wrong? But we know that life doesn't work that way, does it? Life is a little bit more complicated. A few years ago, I was leading some of my guys through a Bible study. And we were talking through one of Paul's letters. I think it was the book of Romans. And one of the lessons I prepared, I, uh, uh, that I prepared taught about the great hope we have in Christ. And that, that hope in Christ was for our future. Now, as I was preparing this lesson, God had laid it on my heart that before this particular group of guys that I was dealing with, before they could get that understanding of hope, there was one more step that they needed to take. So I prepared my lesson, and on that day we met, I carefully walked through the steps that would lead them where they needed to go, and at the right time, I shared something about my own past that they did not know about. Now, once they saw what I shared, one by one, they began to share things that they never had told anyone before. Now, I, re- I already knew where this was, that this was going to happen because God had given me a heads up. But still, even though I knew, I was not prepared for what was going to happen and how it all played out. The last, group, the last guy in our group, he asked, how do I get past all the things that I have done wrong? And there it was, the real question. He was a believer, but before he could truly comprehend what his future in Christ held, He needed to deal with his past. And so today I wonder how many of us have that same issue. How many of us have questions in our minds today because of our past? Today we're going to talk about getting beyond our past. So let me uh, phrase this um, in the form of a question. How does finding Jesus move us beyond our past? In order to answer that question, we're going to go and enlist the help of one of Jesus' closest friends, the Apostle John. He records for us, as we read earlier today, a pretty powerful encounter between the Lord Jesus and an unnamed woman at a well. And we're going to cover a lot of ground, so let's turn to John 4, if you have it in your Bibles. And for the sake of time, let me just read chunks of the text for you. Let me reread it for you in verses 4 to 10. It says, Now he had gone through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sichar, or Sichar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he he would give you uh, living water. Now, the Lord is on his way from Judea to Galilee. He decides on on the most direct route, which takes him through Samaria, 
the relationship between the Jews and the Samaritans were marked by a deep-seated animosity. The Samaritans were looked down upon because they were considered half-breeds, and the Jews were seen as being arrogant and self-righteous. Speaking to women in public was generally taboo, but the Jews had a particular loathing, a particular loathing for Samaritan women. If you associated with any Samaritan, especially a woman, you would be considered ceremonially unclean. And Jesus purposely enters the fray by asking this unnamed Samaritan woman for a drink. You can imagine her surprise as she asks a question of her own. She's a bit shocked that a Jewish man, of all things, would stoop to asking her for something to drink, considering how loathsome Samaritans and Samaritan women in particular are to them. But I love the way Jesus answers, because he's brilliant in his way. He reframes the conversation altogether. He does not allow himself to get caught up in a centuries-long feud. Instead, he elevates the conversation to a higher level. Where, where he is the focal point because he, Jesus, is the gift of God that he was referring to. He is offering something to this woman. He is both ready and willing to give her this gift. And if she had known this, she would have already asked him for this living water that he spoke of. But Jesus is using this word living water very strategically. It's a term that is used in various Old Testament texts. We find it mostly in the prophetic writings where God is calling his people back to himself, usually in the midst of rebellion. Let's look at two verses in particular. Jeremiah 2.13, and then we're going to jump to Isaiah 55, 1-2. Jeremiah 2.13 reads, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Isaiah 55, 1-2, it says, Come all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Notice in Jeremiah 2.13, God shows how his people have committed two sins. They have forsaken him, again, who is the spring of the living water, and they forged their own paths that have left them thirsty. The Isaiah quote shows God extending an offer to restore them at his own cost. This is exactly what is going on here with Jesus. Jesus is doing the same thing with this Samaritan woman. We need to make a very important observation here. The reason he doesn't even bother with the conflict between the Jews and the Samaritan is that they have both, they both have forsaken God. While the Jews somewhat thought that the Samaritans were, um, while the Jews somehow thought the Samaritans were less than, they themselves were actually no better than. John 3.16 says that God so loved the world, that he, uh, which includes the Samaritans, that he gave his son that any who believed would um, come to know him, right? So in other words, your past, whatever and however sorted it may be, your past does not disqualify you from the grace of God, regardless of what anybody tells you. Amen? That was my friend's problem. He shared that early in his marriage, he was horrible to his wife. 
He did not physically abuse her, but you don't, you don't have to be physically abusive to be terrible to someone, right? So I asked him two important questions. Does your wife remind you of what you did? His answer, no, not once. My next question was, does she treat you with any contempt? Again, his answer was no. Based on his answers, I knew what he was suffering from. Guilt and shame. Somehow, he thought his past was so bad that he would not be able to recover from it. For any one of you who are present today that suffer from the same guilt and shame my friend did, let me say to you what I said to him. Because of what Jesus did, you are good. Because Jesus took your past, with his, and, um, he took your past sins, and with his blood, what he, he wiped it away. And what he offers in, in exchange is forgiveness and the ability to move beyond your past. The question is, will you accept it? Let's see how the Samaritan woman responds to Jesus. Sir, the woman replies, I'm, I'm in 11 to 15. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as it also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. But I love her response. She shows that she was just as clueless as Nicodemus. You remember Nicodemus in in, uh, John chapter 3? Well, once again, we see Jesus using that phrase the living water, which he means to refer, as we saw, to God. And later on in John, he, we will learn that Jesus is specifically referring to the Holy Spirit when he uses that term. But the woman is doing what? She's thinking of literal water. Since she is thinking of literal water, she sees no bucket in Jesus' hand and wants to know where he's going to get this water he's referring to. And then she asks him the funniest question in the world. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well, and use it to sustain himself and his family? Now, John is clearly using some irony here, okay? Because in, the, in answer to the question, is Jesus greater than uh, Jacob? Well, yeah, he really is, right? But because she was looking for a pail in his hands to draw out this living water, she missed the power in his eyes that could see the empty well of her soul where he wants to deposit this water. So in brilliant fashion, Jesus responds to her, and once again, he reframes the conversation. He does not answer the question of whether he's greater than Jacob or not. He simply makes statements that make clear that what he is offering, Jacob could never offer. What Jacob offers cannot satisfy something she already knew. We know it too. Anything we do, apart from Jesus, to try and satisfy the ache of our soul because of our past, it does not satisfy. We try, we try to isolate ourselves because we don't want people to know about our past. Or maybe we try alcohol or sex or porn. Whatever it is, you fill in the blank. 
None of it satisfies, and we know it. All these things do is leave us wanting and keeps us from finding Jesus. But instead, Jesus offers a spring of water that wells up to eternal life. Eternal life is not about living forever. John 17, 3 helps us to understand that. Jesus defines eternal life as knowing God and Jesus Christ, who he has sent. And do you know him? Well, this time the woman's response is different. Jesus struck a chord with her, and now she wants what he is offering. She says she does not want to be thirsty anymore, but the reason she gives shows that she is still trying, what, trying to understand what Jesus is saying and considering it as literal water. Watch what he does next, though, in verses 16 to 18. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you, say, when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. She says she wants what he is offering, but on her terms. But Jesus cares about her way too much to make that kind of deal. Now Jesus gets real. Let's camp here in, exchange, uh, in this exchange for a second. Because I want you to pay careful attention to how Jesus handles her. Now, if you really want um, what he's, he's speaking to her, is if you really want what I'm offering, let's talk about your past. So Jesus asked her to go and get her husband. I have no husband is her response, her immediate response, and Jesus reveals how intimately he knows her. Exactly. You are so right when you say you have no husband. In fact, you have had five husbands, and the man you are with now is not your husband. You are exactly right. So one of the ways John describes Jesus in chapter 1 of his letter was that he was full of grace and truth. Grace is the Greek word charis, which means God's favor. Its meaning springs from the Hebrew word hesed, loyal love, and unfailing love. That word truth, now you guys know my wife's name is Althea, right? The Greek word aletheias that's what means truth, and that means that it's the content and substance of what is true. And so what Jesus did, without any judgment, he balanced his unfailing love for this woman with the reality of her life, he speaks truth, and then he stops. He brings no judgment, he brings no condemnation, but why? It's because that's not what he was here for, not condemning people. John 3.17 says that he did not come to condemn the world, but that the world would be saved through him. So why do I bring this up? Because if you're familiar with this passage, this woman is usually described as having a sinful life. She is generally accused of being sexually promiscuous, and Jesus is outing her to reveal her sin. Well, that's a possible understanding of this passage but I don't believe that we have enough evidence in the text to lead us to that conclusion. We, really don't know the, we don't really know the details of her past. All we do know is that she was married five times. Notice, married five times. And then the man she is with is not her husband. And that's it. That's all we're told. There are at least two other potential explanations for this passage. Okay? Now, first of all, all five of her husbands could have all died. 
Second, each of her husbands, or previous husbands, could have just divorced her. In either case, imagine this woman's plight. In the first century, women were not highly thought of. Even if you were married, both the Jews and the Samaritans could divorce their wives for any reason. An unmarried woman was a vulnerable woman. It was not uncommon for a divorced woman to enter agreements with influential men to provide for them and protect them in exchange for the future hope of marrying them. Maybe that was what was going on, and that's what Jesus was poking at, her deep longing for significance. And if this is the case, then she reminds me a little bit of Leah. You guys remember Leah, right? Jacob's wife? Let's look, take a look at um, tw- uh, Genesis 29, 31 to 35. It says there, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave, her, gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery. Surely my husband will love me now. She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, because the Lord heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, now at least my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. So he was named Levi. But she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. She named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. Do you see the trajectory of her hope? Leah lived in the shadow of her beautiful younger sister, Rachel. Even though her father tricked Jacob into marrying her, she clung to him in the hopes that Jacob would love her. You can see the progression of her hopes. They were dashed to the ground until she was left with simply praising the Lord. This Samaritan may have had the same issue, but she found a way to maneuver her way into a potentially better situation where Leah could not. Now, whatever her, the Samaritan woman, whatever her actual situation was, none of that is actually John's point. What Jesus offers her is, in response to her thirst is the point. A way to satisfy her deepest longing in a relationship with God, the living water. So let me get real for a second, because we, we look like we have it all together here in Northern Virginia, don't we? We have... For us, we live in Northern Virginia, which is probably one of the richest areas in the country. Let's take a look at South Run. You got this pretty little building, right? We look nice when we get together and dress up. And anybody passing by who doesn't know us would think that we have it all together. And the truth is, we don't. Because without Jesus, we'd all be a mess. A wretched mess, right? All of us here are currently or have been just as broken and thirsty as the Samaritan woman. Our individual past lives were messy. For crying out loud, some of our current lives are messy. There are marriages that are struggling. There are people who have been divorced or in the midst of divorce. And I'm talking about in the church. Maybe not this one, but churches all over this country, this is happening. There are people who have sorted parts uh, past right in our church and have not yet taken Jesus up on his offer. And for those of us who have, we don't walk around with a sense of having it all together, do we? We're painfully aware of where we are. 
We recognize that we must keep coming back to this spring of living water or else we would destroy ourselves. We don't have it all together, but we see we are being held together by Jesus himself. We get real about our lives because we can't hide anything from Jesus. Just like what he did with this Samaritan woman, he could see right through us. He sees the ache of our soul. He sees the emptiness in our well. And not, he doesn't come to judge, but he's offer, he comes to offer us an exchange. This is what allows us to share our past, because regardless of how sorted it may have been, this is when we share Jesus, when we share our past like this, without concern, we recognize that this is authentic Christian community. Your past is only an account of what your life was before Jesus. And I'm indebted to the Apostle Paul for helping us to see what it looks like when Jesus deals with your past. So with Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy, he says this in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of who I am the worst. Now, I happen to love the Apostle Paul. Of all the New Testament writers, he is my favorite. One, because of his story, but two, because of the power that he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, half of the New Testament. And so every time I read this particular verse, I look at this and say, how could he say this about himself? But he gets what we're talking about today. So let me read it in a fuller context and see how he's written this from verse 12 all the way through 16. And he says this, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And here's our verse again. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But verse 16 says this, but for that very reason, because I was so bad, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Can you see what Paul is doing there? He's not being humble. He's factoring in his past and how Jesus moved him beyond it. Look at verse 13 again. If you're familiar with Paul's story, he was a dangerous individual. Passion unchecked and unfocused leads to a lot of damage, and he did a lot of damage. He was not simply violent. He was murderous. He had other believers killed. Stephen was there. He was at the, the death of Stephen. But look what he says at the end of verse 13. Despite his past, he was shown mercy because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. Isn't that all of us? Don't we all act in ignorance? We think we know. But like Romans chapter 1 tells us, professing ourselves wise, we have become fools. And instead of judging us, God shows us mercy. Despite his past, he was shown mercy because he acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now you see how verse 15 fits? 
He's not done. Look at verse 16. He was shown mercy because he was such a sinner so that he would become an example for anyone willing to believe in Jesus and receive eternal life. This is what Jesus is offering the woman at the well. It is what he offers to all of us. You know, this was a hard truth for my friend to swallow. He wanted to believe this, but he was struggling. And maybe some of you were as well. So let me do for you what I did for him. I pointed him to another of Paul's passages in Romans chapter 5, in verses 20 to 21. It says, the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. So that Jesus, as, uh, as sin reigned, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I was talking with my friend. He would say over and over again all the things that he had done wrong. And I told him, you're naming all the things you did wrong. That's good. Because it is what the law was designed to do. But to put a name to, put a name to your sin, but look at the end of verse 20, which is the point I wanted him to see. And he looked with me when I tried to explain it to him. He looked at me with a blank stare. So I said, let me give you an example. And I used this here with you guys before. You guys, any track and field fans here? None? Like, I'm the only one? Okay, my wife. Thank God. Okay, my wife. So, track and field, we have never seen the likes of Usain Bolt. You guys know who that is, at least? Okay. Everybody should know who Usain Bolt. We've never seen a man stand six foot five, that tall, and move that fast. So, for the sake of the example, let's make Usain sin. And let's put them at the line with the grace of God. So, let's line them up. Ready? Runners, take your mark. Get set, go, the, the gun goes off, and the grace of God heads down the track. It leaves the track, circles the known universe an infinite amount of times, and comes back before Usain could take his first step. Where sin abounds, the grace of God abounds all the more. And the point I was making to my friend was, you cannot out God's grace. It doesn't matter what you have done in the past. You can't outrun God's grace. You will lose that race every single time. But the beauty of what God offers us is forgiveness. Amen? All right, let's get back to the Samaritan woman and see how she responds. Okay, guys, I only need to have you here for another hour. Is that okay? All right, verses 19 to 26. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped in this, on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the fathers seek. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called the Christ, is coming, and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am he. Just then the disciples returned and were, and were surprised to find him talking with a woman, but no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, 
the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and made, her, uh, made their way toward him. Now, I've always found the woman's reaction to Jesus after this whole husband conversation interesting. She clearly recognizes that Jesus is different. He tells her things about her, his, or her life that he, she did not reveal. She rightly deduces that he is a prophet. She turns to the topic of religion and which mountain is the proper place to worship God. Was she being cheeky? Or was she trying to, be, trying to put all things together? To be honest, I really don't know what she was doing by taking the conversation here. But what I do know is what Jesus is doing. He was de- decoupling her from every impediment that was keeping her from seeing who he really was. Regardless of the excuse, regardless of the topic she would bring, he would use that to decouple her. All these things that you used to think, I'm going to untie them from you so that you begin to see me. She started out with the lifelong, uh, the, the long-standing conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. Jesus didn't bother with that. He made it clear that he stood above that conflict, and, but, and, um, but gave her or offered her an incredible um, gift. Will you accept it is what he was trying to get from her. She then asked if he was greater than Jacob. Jacob can't offer you to anything to satisfy you. Will you accept my offer? When she tried to accept his offer on her terms, he got real with her. Now, how do you feel about me now? I exposed everything that you have known. Husbands, relationships, everything. How do you feel about me now? Okay, I can concede you're a prophet, is what she's saying. Well, what about worshiping God? Which location is a place to worship God? On this mountain or in Jerusalem? It's actually a decent question, but it's connected to the past. Contrary to the Jewish perception, the Samaritans were very familiar with the books of Moses. In fact, their Bible did not include anything but the books of Moses. They knew Moses spoke of a prophet like him that would come and lead them. So her perception that Jesus was a prophet was not a small thing. Mount Gerizim, which is most likely the mountain she is referring to, had a significant history for the Samaritans. But for Jesus, the argument is tied to the past. Worship of God has nothing to do with location because it's totally about orientation. It's not location, it's orientation. Because when you are properly oriented to God, it won't matter where you worship. Jesus was not being cruel when he told her that the Samaritans didn't know what they were worshiping. He was speaking the truth. They had a long and horrific history of idolatry and syncretism. The Jews, while marginally better, recognized that Jerusalem was the official place of God, uh, worship for God, and, least, uh, and at least for a while that is true. But with Jesus' arrival, a new way to worship has dawned. Those who worship God must worship him empowered by his spirit and according to the way he wants, which is truth. Now Jesus strikes another chord with her because she recognizes that what he is saying sounds like who Moses spoke of. And she knew that when he, the Messiah, comes that he would explain everything, and in a, in a rare instance, Jesus reveals the fact that he is indeed the Messiah. Just as she was finishing up her conversation, conversation with Jesus, disciples show up. Allow me to skip over to verse 28. I emphasized this when I was reading it. She leaves her water jar and then goes and shares her conversation with Jesus to the townspeople. Now, maybe it's my sanctified imagination, Okay? 
But Jesus was getting her to get to a place. He was moving her to a place that she would do. And the significance of that is her leaving her jar. What did she come to get with that jar? Water. Why did she leave it there? Could it be that she finally found release? Could it be that she finally realized that the living water that I actually need is not in a place or in a thing, but it's in him, in Jesus? And that's why she went and talked to the people. Come see a man who's told me everything and anything that I've done. Could this be the Messiah? And all of a sudden, that empty soul, that dry well, had this living water beginning to spring up in it. I wonder if there's any of us today that needs this same exchange. Do you need that release? In order for you to let go of your past... I mean, in order for you to get this gift that God is offering you, you have to let go of the past. There needs to be a release. Now, getting back to my friend, I spent 45 minutes with him trying to reiterate to him that he was good because of what Jesus had done. And all he needed to do was accept it. It seemed to satisfy him at that moment. And then we went home. A couple of weeks later, he called me to tell me that that study that we had done was life-changing. And so I asked him, what, why? What, what was it about it? And he said, like that Samaritan woman, I finally let go. I found release. My past doesn't haunt me anymore. And I can look at my, li- my wife with true love now, because I don't keep thinking that she has something against me. Well, today, uh, I would offer this to you. If you guys are dealing with guilt or shame from your past, I want to help you to find that same release. It takes, take Jesus up on his offer for that living water because it alone, it alone satisfies. If you, would, if you would like to talk after service, I will sit here. We'll have two opportunities for you to be able to find a release. One is just sitting down and talking with me. Like, with Jesus, like the woman found with Jesus, a conversation can mean a bunch the second way we're going to do it is to participate in the Mercy Meal. Now, as I close, let me quote one last time from the Apostle Paul. Philippians 3, 13 to 14, it reads, Brethren, I count, my, I count, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, we're grateful. We're grateful that you have superintended and kept your word so that for us who live now 2,000 years later are recipients of the wonder of your grace as recorded in this text. I pray, Lord God, that if there are any here who are suffering from past guilt and shame, that they would find release today, or at least be on that road to release because of the work that you have done, nothing that we have done. I pray, Lord, that you would help them to hear the message of this text. You speak to that heart because your desire is for us not to wallow in guilt and shame, but to be able to find release in the grace that you've given us through Jesus Christ. So take now this message, and for those who are in need of it, massage it into their hearts. Help us not to forget it. 
And for those of us who have been recipients of this grace, Lord God, help us to remember that our job is to do as Jesus has done, go and to share it. Like the Samaritan woman, go and to tell others. And so the work that's going on here at South Run, Lord God, I ask that you continue to bless it and that this hope that you've given us through Jesus would continue to spread for the good of the people here, but for the glory of your great name. It is in your name I pray. Amen.